0: Revelation chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. To The angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and Repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. I don't know if you realize this or not, but in America, every year, 2,500 churches close their doors for good. 2,500. And this has been going on for quite some time. 75% of people um, who claim to be Christians never attend church on any given Sunday. In the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, which we are part of, we have over 16 million members. But on any given Sunday, you will not find more than a third of them actually attending a local church service. 66% of today's young people, when they leave home, whether to go to college or go to a job and out on their own, walk away from the faith. Only 30% of church members are actively engaged in their congregation. Almost every major denomination in America Has been on the decline for the last 10 years. Now, as sobering as those statistics are, we also are in a time where some very high profile people are walking away from the faith. Most recently, this past week, was a major high profile person, for some of you may not recognize, but his name was Marty Sampson. Marty Sampson was one of the lead um, worship leaders for Hillsong United. In fact, he has been leading worship with Hillsong since the 1990s, and he has chosen to walk away from the faith. He has announced that he is no longer a Christian. Here's what he said on his Instagram, I am genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like what bothers me now is nothing. Samson has been a contributing member, again, and worship leader and songwriter, and here's what he said as the reason why he's leaving the faith, because of preachers who are falling, the death of miracles as we see them not happening any longer, the Bible being full of contradictions, and a seeming dissonance between the unconditional love of God and the fact that he sends people to an eternal damnation. And just on the heels of him was Pastor John Harris, who is a lead pastor of a megachurch who has recently divorced his wife, disavowed his faith in Christ, and has walked away from from the faith. He has written a book recently, and he's even said, everything I wrote in that book, count it as false, it's not true. So how does a man who has pastored a megachurch for many years and a song leader who's been leading worship for many, many years all of a sudden decide it's time to walk away from the faith? How did I come to the determination that everything I have believed, everything I have held dear to myself and in my heart and and my Lord and God, all of that is now false. It is, you know, it's a sham, and I'm walking away, and I don't even feel bad about it. How does that happen? This is the issue that Jesus is going to address in the church at Sardis. It's not a new one. What God says about this church is that, listen, you guys, you're gathering together, you're having worship services, you're doing a lot of things. You have the reputation of being alive, but when I look at you, I see that you're dead. So Jesus says, hey, wake up. And the difficulty in this passage is this. Well, is Jesus addressing people who thought they were Christians but actually were not? Or is he addressing a group of people, a group of Christians who just got lazy and sloppy and kind of casual about their spiritual life and just kind of took their foot off the gas? Or again, are these people who thought they were converted, but they're not? Well, my answer to that question is yes and yes. He could be addressing both issues, right? So Jesus, in his teachings... Uh, used to talk about the wheat and the tares growing up together in the church, and that you could not distinguish one from the other until the time of harvest. And so the time of harvest is when Jesus comes back and raptures his bride of Christ out of this world, and so he will separate those who are true believers and those who appear to be true believers but were, in fact, actually not. So that could be who he's addressing here, or it could be those Christians who have this appearance, you know, they started off well, and and maybe something happen, happened along the way, and all of a sudden, they've just become disenfranchised from Christ and from the body of Christ, and so they just kind of pull away, and they fall away from the church. And so, obviously, the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, addresses that issue of those who fall away, who are Walking in the faith and all of a sudden they decide like, you know what, I-, I don't want this anymore and I'm just walking away, I'm leaving it all. And so 1 John two nineteen says in regards to those who maybe claimed to be believers but weren't actually, he says, they went out from us but they did not really belong to us for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Why is this important? To us. Why is this important for us to study this passage and what is happening in the context of this church? And what may be happening in the context of our own church. If Jesus were to spotlight us and say, you know, whether it's our lives individually or our church corporately, would he say about us? You have a reputation of being alive, but when the reality is, when I look at you, you're actually, you're actually dead. Everything that is in the physical, invisible world around us is controlled by the things that are in the invisible and spiritual world. And the only way that you can ever fix what's going on in the visible, physical world is to first fix what's happening in the invisible and the spiritual world or your spiritual life. For example, there may be things in your life that you want to fix but you'll never fix them by trying to fix them externally, right? So if you're unhappy, you're not going to establish happiness that's going to last a lifetime because you bought another car or you bought a boat or you bought whatever it is that you think is going to bring you eternal happiness. It just won't happen. You've tried that before, and you know it doesn't work. I mean, you're happy for a little while until you have to start paying for this stuff, and you have to start maintaining it. And so that is why... Um, society can go for years and even centuries without seeing the basic destructive problems being solved in its society, no matter how much money you pour into it, how much political force you put behind it, how much education you throw at it. it just doesn 't get any better because you 've never really dealt with the root problem that 's always a spiritual issue All right so let 's take for example spending, right? If I'm overspending and I'm spending more than I'm bringing in, now we know logically that is not a wise thing, right? You're not like the government. You can't print more money or you can't put the burden on somebody else to pay you taxes in order to make up for that deficit. At the core of the problem is we have an issue of selfishness and greed, and we're looking for those things to bring to us what we can only find in Christ. And until we deal with those issues, then nothing actually changes. Well, same thing is true in this church, the same thing is true in our lives, and it could be the same thing that's true in our church here corporately. There are things that are happening around us, but until we really address the issues at hand that are spiritual issues, what's happening on the physical realm and visible realm of things will never solve itself until we first deal with the spiritual aspect of our lives. And so we're living in a time and day where everybody wants to label people, you know. So we're, we're demonizing people and we're labeling people. And so Satan in our own country is creating great division. And here's what Jesus says. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And you see, it's a spiritual issue that's going on but we're not addressing the spiritual issue. We're trying to address the political issues. We're trying to address the city issues or the state or the national issues, but we're never getting at the heart of the real issue, which is a spiritual issue. And until you address that, nothing else is going to get solved. So there are three groups of people that Jesus addresses in this letter. The first group are the dead, right? He just flat out says, you got a reputation of being, you know, pretty good, but I'm just telling you, you are dead. Notice how he says, how he reveals himself to these people. He says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have this reputation. Now, the seven spirits of God is not referring to seven different spirits. It is the word, the number seven means fullness or completeness. He is talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which is the indwelling and empowering force that is to be in the heart and life of any believer or any church. In other words, the Bible says when we came into the world, we were spiritually dead. How did we acquire spiritual life? We acquired spiritual life through Jesus Christ by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who drew us into that relationship with Christ. It is Jesus who paid our sin debt. It is Jesus who breathes into us the breath of life, the Spirit of God. If you want to bring life into a dead church, there must be the empowerment and the indwelling and the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon it. The same thing is true in your life. You know, people can say, well, I believe in Jesus all of their lives. I believe Jesus was alive. I believe Jesus did a lot of good things. I believe he's a great teacher. I think we ought to follow his model. But unless they've been born again, as Jesus says, they'll not see the kingdom of God and they have no spiritual life. And so he's talking here about this fullness of the Spirit, the one that brings life to a dead church, the power of the Holy Spirit who brought life to your dead spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is not an it, it is not a force. It is a he. He is a member of the Trinity. In fact, he is the first person in the Trinity who is revealed in the Bible all the way back in the book of Genesis during God's creation account. Now, it says, in the beginning, God created Elohim in the plural, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is the first one mentioned who was hovering over God's creation as it was being spoken into being, and he is the creating force behind it all. And so the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved, and at that moment when you give your life to Christ, it is, it is the Holy Spirit who now indwells you, and your body literally becomes the temple of God, right? You're hosting the Holy Spirit within you. This is so, so important. What does it mean to operate in the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Does that mean uh, that I'm going to get more of the Holy Spirit than I got when I got saved? Does that mean like God like passes it out in doses? That's not what he means at all. When you're walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, it means you're walking fully submitting to and surrendering to the Spirit of God within you. That's why the Bible talks about do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit? Through our sin, through our actions, the things that we do, the things that we say that bring great Grieving, In other words, the Holy Spirit is, is like grieving over the fact that we're just hanging on to, we're holding on to sin when it is what the Spirit wants to do is that he wants the fullness of the Spirit just wants to like just overtake our entire body, our minds, and our wills, and our emotions, and, and that we walk in this fullness of the Spirit rather than caving into every temptation that comes down the road. Watch this. Jesus took our dead lives Jesus can take a dead church and bring it back to life because it is Jesus who is the dispenser of the Holy Spirit through his act of sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. And when you walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the victory that Jesus gained for you through the cross of Calvary is the victory that you can walk in day in and day out if you'll stay submitted to and surrendered under the Holy Spirit of God. All right, so... It's something like, uh, let's look at it like this. It's kind of like Tiger Woods. I don't know if you, most of you probably heard Tiger Woods. He's a professional golfer, undoubtedly, probably one of the greatest golfers ever. He's, he's won over 80 tournaments, 15 majors, unheard of on the PGA Tour. And let's just say that Tiger Woods became my golf instructor so that I could play at that level. Now, my son in law and I played in a golf outing yesterday. It's, it's a benefit for, um, People for, um, so it's a benefit for for cancer patients, and so what this does is they raise money through this uh, golf outing, and they actually select a family who have incurred heavy medical debt because someone in the family has cancer, they actually bring the the family to the golf course. At the end, they present them with the money that they raised. I think last year they raised like $15,000, I don't know what it is this year. But as you know, tremendous thing. So we played in, in that outing. Can, and can I assure you, I, in no way, even close to playing to the level of Tiger Woods. You would not level me, label me as like one of the greatest golfers of all times. But what if? What if somehow, some way, Tiger Woods can crawl into my body, indwell my body, and all of a sudden he's functioning through my body? And when I'm swinging, it's really him swinging, but you know he's just like swinging through me, right? And so now all of a sudden my game goes to a brand new level. And if I were to step out in a golf outing with that degree of expertise, people would stand back in amazement. This is exactly what the Holy Spirit of God has done. Listen, it is the Holy Spirit who wants to indwell you and kind of overtake you and and submit it to his fullness so that it's like he is living his life through you just as Jesus demonstrated it could be done as he set aside the God card and allowed the Holy Spirit to fill him, to anoint him, to move him, to direct him, to guide him in his earthly ministry, the Spirit of God moving through him. So Jesus says to his church, just as the Spirit of God did that through me, now he can do it through you. That's why he said to his disciples, do not go out on the mission field. Do not do anything until you have been dwelt by the fullness of the Spirit of God. And once the fullness of the Spirit of God hit them, they became absolutely transformed. And God began to do the very things he did through Jesus while here on earth as our Messiah In an earthly body, he began to do it through his church because the same Holy Spirit that was indwelling him is the same Holy Spirit is that indwelling us. It's the Trinity. It's not three different gods, one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all working in connection and conjunction together. And so, man, understand, I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit is your coach, though he does coach us, but he resides within us to allow us to understand the extraction, the fullness, of allowing him to enable us to walk in this same victory. And so here's the church at Sardis. Jesus says, "You're a dead church. I know your deeds, working hard, holding services. Maybe you got some small groups going on, but you're trying you don't even understand you don't even see the fact that you're doing all of this out of sheer human strength and ability. There's no empowerment of the spirit." As I shared last Sunday we could do everything we do here on Sundays. Without, we could, the Holy Spirit could vacate us, and we wouldn't even know it. In fact, the average Baptist church would not even... It'd take them years before they realized the Holy Spirit wasn't even there. Because what we seek to do oftentimes is what we can do in our own human strength and ability, right? I don't have to have the Holy Spirit in me to get in my car and drive to church. I don't have to have the Holy Spirit in me to pray, read my Bible. I don't have to have the Holy Spirit where I can you know, sit down and prepare a message. You don't have to have the Holy Spirit to go into a small group and talk about the Bible. You don't need the Holy Spirit for any of that stuff. You could do all of that and not even realize you're not even dwelt by the Holy Spirit and be lost and be dead. And that's exactly the condition of many in this church. They were going through all of the motions, but they didn't even realize they were doing it in their own human effort and strength. And the Spirit of God wasn't there. Now, what would happen if they died physically? They would be the ones that would stand before Jesus. And Jesus said, listen, depart from me. I never knew you. But did we not do da-da-da-da-da-da and give you, you give Jesus your long resume list? You know, I had perfect attendance in Sunday school, and I had perfect, you know, I read my Bible every day, but I didn't know you. This is a danger. And once, one of the ways that you know that a church has died, that the Holy Spirit has vacated, is all they ever focus upon is the past and nothing going on in the present not looking forward to much in, in the future, but we just talk about the past. Now, the past is a great foundation, but it was never meant to be a hammock, only a springboard into what God wants to do, right? And so the church that finds its identity and what it used to do as a church and refuses to operate in the here and now, when you pride yourself in the past, you presume upon the future while the while passing over today. You know, I've been to, to England a few times and Wales and some other countries where there were great, great churches. For example, I was in England on a mission trip. And I you know, went to West, Westminster Abbey and St. Paul's Cathedral. I, I spent time in Wales where the great Welsh revivals happened. And so during that time when, the, when God's revival was hitting Wales, it was just like heading south. And it, literally the people said that, that God's glory just kind of tabernacled over the churches to where they literally glowed and got, and it just kept coming south and coming south, and then all of a sudden it stopped. And I've been in a lot of those churches. Can I tell you, they're dead. And nobody's attending anything. They've got all of these relics and rituals but there's, there's like barely a handful of people in them. I've been in churches all throughout Italy, throughout Sicily, and you walk into these great, magnificent buildings that have all kinds of architecture and all kinds of stuff going on, and then there's like six women in the corner, God bless their souls, they are at least there's a remnant there praying that God would do something in their church. This isn't just a few of the churches. These are almost all of them I've been in. They're dead. But they've got a great past. They could talk about their history. And so the sad thing is the church in Sardis, they didn't even know they were dead. You know what it reminds me of was Samson. You remember when Samson and Delilah, you know, Delilah wants to figure out what the what the uh, magic pill is for his, his great strength, and she's you know really siding with the Philistines, who were the arch enemy of of Samson and the Israelites, and Samson tells her, oh, you know, if you do this, you wrap me up in this, and, uh, you know, and then she, he does, she does it, and he, she yells for the Philistines. They come, and he breaks off the cords, and, you know, so, like, it, it goes through this three times. Like, you think the elevator would have come to the top of the shaft by now, figuring out, like, she's not truthful about what she's doing here. Finally, he gives it up, right? You cut my hair. I'm just like any other man, and so she does. She cuts his hair, calls for the Philistines, and he comes out, and watch this, and the Bible says he comes out against the Philistines like he had always done in the past, with great strength and might and power of the Lord. But here's the saddest verse in the Bible. It says that he came out against the Philistines, and he didn't even realize the Lord had left him. And of course they succumb him, gouge out his eyes, put him in chains, haul him off as a prisoner. It's the same thing with Israel. There's time in their history. Back in the Old Testament, God wrote Ichabod across the tel- The Lord's glory has departed. They didn't even know it. They didn't realize it. it took them years to figure it out. Or even in Jesus' day, the, the, the Pharisees, um, you know, Jesus called them whitewashed tombstones. Now, there's a, there's a thing for you. They were the, of their father, the devil. They had all the religious garb. They had all the religious trappings, but they didn't even realize they were dead can you can Jesus resurrect again a church a dead church absolutely when Jesus took ezekiel and brought him out into a valley of dry bones he said hey ezekiel here's your church preach to them and ezekiel starts preaching to them and all of a sudden something began to happen something began to get inspired, and all of a sudden, God started taking dry bones and putting them together and putting ligament on them and fleshing them out, and the Bible says that then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God breathed into them life. God can resurrect dead churches if you'll recognize that you're dead, all right? If you don't recognize it, you'll never do anything about it you'll just keep doing the same things you've always done the way you've always done it, hoping that somehow, someway, you're going to get a different result, which is the definition of insanity. Try, just keep doing the same thing over and over again, hoping you're going to get different results. And so the key to the church at Sardis is the key to any New Testament church. If you want to have life in the church, you better be walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It is the difference between a funeral home and a birthing center you know i walk into funeral homes it's it's all nice and peaceful everybody's got their suits on everybody's on their best behavior pretty flowers everywhere everyone's kind of low key low talk whispering there's a body in the casket that's been made up to look like it's not dead and and so it's just it's just a you know it can be just like a peaceful thing you ever walked into a birthing center it is loud it is messy There are women screaming. I remember we had our first when Stacy was born, there were like they usher Marla in, and they bring me back there. And there's a girl in a room across the hallway. She's 16 years old. She is literally climbing the walls because this baby's coming out, and she's screaming and crying. And I just noticed in the birthing room, there's a lot of messiness, right? There is blood, there is water, there is placenta. There's all kinds of stuff coming out. And and you, you know, you 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 know, when your wife says, "Come over here, close to me, honey," you do not want to do that at the time she is having a major contraction. She just wants to take you out because you. Help accumulate this problem. Isn't that what we want in our churches? We don't want to be funeral homes. We want to be birthing centers. Yes, it is messy. Yes, it is loud. It doesn't always go the way you planned it. It doesn't always look pretty But when you birth people into the kingdom of God, it's because the fullness of the Holy Spirit is being activated in the hearts and the lives of God's people. And you're out there on the streets sharing Jesus with somebody else, right? The only way these seats in this auditorium are going to get filled up with new baby Christians is if we become a birthing center, not just as a church corporately, but as individuals. And we are out there in our place, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, and where we rub shoulders with people and we're actually talking about Jesus because that's what the Holy Spirit wants to converse about. He doesn't want to converse about our past. I mean, our past is a wonderful thing. God bless our past because this church has been built on the shoulders of those who, who you know, formed this church from its inception. But you can't linger there. You cannot live off of yesterday's manna. You have to live off of what God is calling us to do today. And if we're not out there sharing, if we're not out there being birthing centers, then it should not come as a surprise to us that a year from now, five years from now, this church will look the same. Only some of you will be gone. Some of you will fall away. Some of you will die. And some of you, yeah, you just, you're just going to walk away from the faith. And so he says to the dead church, wake up. Here's the dying in verses 2 and 3. He says there are, there are those who are dead. There are those who are dying. How do you know when you're dying? You know you're dying spiritually when you lose your passion for worship and prayer. When you have no hunger for the Word of God, when you lack love for others, there's no witness for Christ, and you're giving very little. Why? Because those attributes are the attributes of the Holy Spirit and walking in His fullness. You're walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you, you're going to have a love and a passion for God's Word, God's people, for worship, for sharing Jesus with others, loving others. I mean, there's just going to be a hunger and a passion there, and there was a remnant in this church, he says, who were the dedicated. I mean, these were the dedicated saints of God who were just doing it, man. They were getting it done, and they were a small portion of the church, but they were there. God always has his remnant, even in the areas of places where something is dying and something is dead because he wants to bring it back to life again. So in essence, here are the three things that Jesus said to the church. I want you to wake up, I want you to listen up, and I want you to dress up, right? I want you to wake up, listen up, and I want you to dress up if we're going to change this thing, if we're going to turn it around. And so wake up is an echo from the past. Sardis was a city that was 1,500 feet above sea level. It was like on a mountain. The, The downside of that was... They were landlocked. The upside was, three quarter, I mean, around three sides of the city were nothing but sheer cliffs. So no one could could you know like scale the cliffs at their enemies and invade them by surprise. There was only one road into Sardis. It was a very steep road. You could see your enemy coming from a long, long way. And so they used to to, um, joke about the fact that it is so easy to guard Sardis from your enemies, even a child could do it. Ha, ha, ha. Well, what happens when you become apathetic? What happens when you become lackadaisical? Your enemy finds a foothold, and that foothold becomes a trench, and before you know it, they're invading you. Two times in their history by the Assyrians and the Persians, that city was overtaken because the watchman at the gate fell asleep. Thinking in his mind, it really doesn't matter because no one could impregnate our city. No one can get through. Even if they make it up the steep terrain, they cannot get through our fortified walls. And so Jesus says, hey, let's take a cue from the past. Wake up. Wake up. You, you, you think you're alive, but you're dead. Let's, let's move forward. So when Jesus says, wake up, he is saying, listen, you need to engage in what's going on. This church has no attack from an outside enemy. There's nothing going on, on the inside. Like there was no false doctrines going on, like the doctrine of the Nicolaitans or the, you know, um, like The teachings of Jezebel or any of these things, the church had just become apathetic. And when a church becomes apathetic and chooses not to engage in the enemy territory, and what I mean by enemy territory is your enemy, again, are not people, our enemy is a spiritual issue in the invisible realm that is being played out in the physical, visible realm that you and I have been called to engage in that battle. Jesus said, I came to destroy the works of the devil, and he gave that same authority and a dominion to the church of Jesus Christ to also destroy the works of the devil as he is playing them out here on planet earth. Now, I cannot make a person be saved. I cannot make a person love God. I can't make anyone do anything any more than God can make anyone do anything because he gave his free will. But I can bring to bear in somebody's life the good news about Jesus Christ and what he has come in order to assemble for you as a follower of his that you might benefit from his his victory over sin and death and the enemy. Proverbs 28.1 says that the righteous will be as bold as lions. I find that ironic since the Bible describes Satan as a lion who's seeking to devour. We are to be called bold as lions and as we are bold as lions we seek to engage culture lifting high the name of Jesus and we're going to if we're going to lift the high the name of Jesus you're going to butt heads with culture people don't want to hear the message but it doesn't mean that the spirit of god is too weak to break through even the most hardened of hearts when we became, you know, become a church who chooses not to engage, but we choose to be indifferent, apathetic, and lethargic, and not celebrate life change, and not lift up high the name of Jesus, not to embrace, listen, we will not embrace the doctrines of faith, we will not choo- we'll just choose to blend in with our culture, this is not what God has called us to do. We are to be at the center of God's will, engaging in culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ, And when you are in the center of God's will, it does not necessarily mean it's a safe place to be. All throughout the New Testament, people were persecuted. All throughout our world, Christians are persecuted all around. world, There are more martyrs in our world, in our day and time, in modern America, in modern world history, than at any other time in all of church history. This is a fight that we listen. We have been called not to not to um, board a cruise ship of Christianity. We have been called to get on a battleship, and we are to. What hangs in the balance, man, as we're fighting is that souls of men and women and young people who need to know that Jesus is alive and that Jesus has the power to save and to heal and to deliver. There are only two things that Jesus gave the church. He says, I want you to what? Here's my great commission. Here's my great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and go out and make disciples of all nations. Those are the two um reasons why we exist as a church. We draw life from God and we point others to Christ. Our tendency, and churches that die and become dead, our tendency is always to become inward focused, right? We focus on our needs and our wants and our desires and what's best for us and how's this going to affect us and how's this going to, you know, hurt, better us. And so God is saying, listen, do not diminish the mission, The minute you diminish the mission, you start that downward spiral of dying until you're dead. We have opportunities to speak, and we have to invest in others. And so Jesus says, Wake up. If you don't turn this thing around, you're going to be gone. You're going to close your doors. You're not going to be here anymore. And so he says, now listen up. Here's the remedy. Here's how you turn the ship around. And notice it says in verse 6, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say. Verse 3, remember therefore what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. What have they received and heard? They had received and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right, they were to listen to the voice of the Spirit. It is so so critical that if we take the gospel, we are to listen to the directions and the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. And some people say, "Well, man, I just have trouble hearing this, hearing His voice." Jesus said, "My sheep will hear My voice; they will know Me, they will follow Me, they will obey Me." It's one of the ways that you know that you've actually been born again is you have a desire and a hunger to follow your shepherd. And when Jesus made that statement, it was a time and day where all the shepherds would bring all their sheep every night into a common pen, even though there were like 10 shepherds and maybe 400 sheep. And the next morning, the shepherd, all he had to do was call his own sheep and they would, you know, the sheep have already intermingled with each other all night long. He would call out his sheep and his sheep from that mingled group of sheep would come running, come following his shepherd. They knew his voice. Sheep are very stupid animals. But they do have a keen sense of hearing. And when the shepherd spoke, the sheep followed. And so Jesus is saying, do not set aside what I have given you. I have given you the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, salvation to heal and to save and to deliver to heal people in their soul, to break down the strongholds that so have confused the minds of God's people so that we begin to walk in the victory of Jesus so we're not yielding to those temptations as often as we used to. And we are walking in the power and the fullness of God, and we are kind of just like bathing in the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit comes and operates in us and through us. He says, Otherwise, I will come like a thief, like an Ichabod, like a Samson, and you won't even know the Spirit has moved. Not that You don't have the Spirit inside of you anymore. He's just not operating. So here's my Holy Trinity. And really what I want to share in, in, in this section. Prayer, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God are the Holy Trinity. And here's Why? The church of Jesus Christ is the womb through which God births the miraculous. When God wants to bring something from heaven to earth, he does so through the church of Jesus Christ. We are the only entity that has been commissioned by Christ to take the gospel into the known world. No one else has that responsibility but us. We can't shove that responsibility over onto somebody else. And so it is our responsibility. It is what we will give an account for when we stand before Christ as his judgment seat. And he's given us this Holy Spirit. He's given us talents and gifts and abilities and resources. And his question is, how did you leverage that for my kingdom purposes? And we will all give an account. And so Jesus says, all authority and all dominion has been given over to me. And he says, I'm going to give that over. What the Father has given to me, I'm giving it over to the church. And so he said to the church, you will be clothed with power from on high. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And Jesus knew his disciples lacked natural resources and would have to depend upon the Holy Spirit of God to do the supernatural as God is supplying what is needed to accomplish that. Because listen, this thing we call the Christian life, This thing we call taking the gospel into the world, it is a supernatural activity of God. If you've ever been a part of leading someone to Christ, it's not the eloquence of your words. It's not because you said every sentence correctly. You had every verse all lined up. No, if the Spirit of God's not involved in that conversation, that person will remain dead spiritually for the rest of their lives. The only reason a person comes the faith in Christ is because the Spirit of God is in the middle of that conversation, and he is the one who is bringing supernatural things out of a natural person's life. All right? It's all the Holy Spirit. It's not me. It's not you. It's the Holy Spirit working through us. And so what God wants to do is to release this river of God's power And it's why we're going to have a 21 days of prayer and fasting. I want to get you prepared as a river that God may flow his resources from heaven to earth and you become the river through which he's going to do that because that's exactly what God has called you to do. When God wants to release his resources from heaven to earth, it's like he's giving birth to something. It's the Holy Spirit who brings that about through the Word of God and the Spirit of God in prayer in conjunction with one another. God's power flows from heaven through human beings, whether it's by speaking, it may be by laying hands on someone and praying for them, it can be all kinds of different ways. Like Jesus is not going to come from heaven to earth and have spiritual conversations with people. That's what he called us to do. Right? Jesus isn't coming from heaven to earth to lay hands on the sick and to pray for their healing. That's what he's called us to do. Jesus isn't coming from heaven to earth to come down and deal with the demonic issues in people's lives. That's what he's called us to do. But what we have done as a church is that we've set all of those things aside as though God stopped doing those things you know, a thousand years ago when in fact he hasn't stopped anything. We just stopped walking in the fullness of the Spirit. Now, let me show you this from the word of God, right? So as the body of Christ, we are God's womb from which life is released upon earth. So that life Christ produces flows through us. John 7, 38, here's what Jesus said. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Now, the phrase innermost being or belly is the Greek word kolola, which means womb, Translating literally, it would say, out of his womb shall flow rivers of living water. And so the word speaks of what? Reproduction, birthing, bringing forth life. Now, if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 22, listen to what what the Bible says. Verse 1, the angel showed me the river of water, of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down in the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. All right? Leaves are produced by these trees, which are fed by the river, which comes from the throne, from the Lamb of God. People, the nations, they eat of those leaves. They're made whole. The phrase, river of the water of life, is the exact same Greek phrase that is used in John chapter 7. There's no difference between the river of flowing out of the Lamb, bringing healing and illness to the earth, and the river of living water that are, being, uh, that are flowing from the womb of the church. We are the birthing vessels, the incubation changers. It is the very life of Jesus ministering through us on planet earth. He went on to say in John 7:39, "It is the spirit flowing from us." Again, Jesus doesn't lay a hand on the sick; we do. Jesus doesn't have gospel conversations with people; we do. We become the birthing center of what the spirit of God wants to do in someone's life as we yield ourselves to the spirit and we walk in the fullness of the spirit and we allow the healing life of Jesus flow from heaven down to earth, extending out to those who are in need through our lives. Man, I, I'm going to tell you what. I had a deacon in my church in Alabama. His name was Dempsey, and Dempsey had never led anybody to Jesus. And I said, Dempsey, I want you to come with me. We're going to go out and we're going to do some evangelistic visits, right? So we go to this guy's house, and we're sitting there talking to him. His wife had asked me to come visit her husband. He sat on the table across from me I, and, and there's only been a few times I've had this happen, but as I looked in that man's eyes, it was like you were looking at Satan himself, and I heard as clearly as day, God is like Satan says, he's mine, he's mine, you, you can't touch him, and so, you know, we shared the gospel, nothing happened, then she got a little discouraged, we went to a couple more houses, finally we go to a fourth house, and I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to get the conversation started, I want you to take over. And so, watch this, Jesus birthed something in him that night, because he sat down with a teenage boy, and he began sharing about his life story, and how God had changed his life, and what God had done for him, and that kid gave his life to Jesus. I don't want to tell you what, from that day forward, God birthed something into him, he poured out what God was birthing, and that is new life in the life of this teenage kid, from that day forward, you could not shut that man up talking about Jesus. he witnessed to a phone pole if you let him. He didn't care, right? Because he had tasted of God's Spirit moving through him in fullness and it translating into somebody's life being radically transformed for all of eternity. Man, when you get involved in this birthing business and get out of the funeral business, you don't have to pump people up in worship services. You don't have to try to raise the dead every Sunday. You're going to come in here and you'll be like you'll be like hanging off these lights up here. I mean, I'm going to have to drag you back down because of what God has done. But the only reason God will do that is if we open up our hearts and lives and we allow the fullness of the Spirit to flow in us and through us as we surrender and we submit everything we are to Him. Man, there are measures... Power is measurable. Here's what Paul said in Romans 12.3. He says, as God has allotted to each of you a measure of faith. That word measure is um, metron, which we get our word meter. In other words, God has metered out to each of you a portion of faith. The Bible goes on to say there are measurable levels of sin and grace and love and power. Here's my point. Certain amounts of this power or life, must be released into the spiritual realm in order to accomplish certain things. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me give you two examples right out of the life of Jesus. In Mark chapter 6, it says that Jesus went into Nazareth. He wasn't able to do very many miracles. He wanted to, but he couldn't because there just was no measure of faith there from which him to operate. And so he left that city wanting to do more than he did, but he was hindered. Or look at his disciples in Matthew chapter 17. The disciples had been, Jesus sent them out on an expedition. They were healing people, casting out demons. Uh, The sick were, you know, getting well, and Jesus had given them authority and power to do so. And then all of a sudden they came across a demon-possessed boy, and they tried to, you know, to exercise and deliverance, but they couldn't do it. And it came, and so finally, they come back to Jesus. And man, we tried this. It wasn't working. Jesus went, and he did what they were unable to do. And Jesus looked at them and said, some things only come by prayer and fasting. What Jesus was saying is, there needs to be a releasing of the Spirit, and it may not come just through one prayer. See, our problem is, we want to pray for something one time and have God just automatically just do everything we want him to do. Sometimes it takes more than that. For example, Elijah, when he was sent to a widow's house and her son had died, all of a sudden this great prophet of God comes in there and says, madam don't worry about it. Your son's not dead. And he goes into the room where he's laying there and he spreads himself out over that young boy and he starts praying. What is he doing? He's releasing God's, right, God's healing from heaven down to earth and he prays not once He doesn't pray twice. He has to pray three times before that young man arose from the dead. And can you imagine that kid's face when he saw this old prophet like laying over top of him? He's like, "Dude, get off me! Uh, Why three times? Did he not have enough faith? Was he not really a prophet of God? Why why, did he pray the right the first time? We're really not told." I believe the reason is, is that because sometimes you are praying for something and God is releasing power, but you've got to pray for it more than one time. And every time you pray, there's power being released. There's power being released. There's power being released. Again, in Elijah, take another page out of his life when God says, it's my will to send rain. It's my desire. I'm going to do it now, and I'm going to do it this way, and I want you to pray for it to happen. And Elijah had to pray seven times. For that to happen, why? Because there's a releasing that happens through our prayers. Uh, I just want to encourage you that when you're praying for something and God's wanting to use you in in a miraculous way, it doesn't mean it's always going to happen, like right then at that moment in that time. Even though that's what you desire, and it may be that God desires that, but the timing just isn't right because there needs to be this releasing. So when we come to the Book of Revelation, we read about the bulls that are in heaven that that hold the prayers of the saints, and when God's bull, that bull is filled out, it says he pours it out upon earth, and he brings about the miraculous that is needed because of the prayers of God's people. That's why it is important that we gather here on a Wednesday night, and we pray. It's not just about praying for our church. It's not just about praying for one another. We are we are storing up our prayers in heaven so that God, you, God may move on your heart that week to go and pray for somebody who, who may. Man, they are just like depressed and they're filled with anxiety and they don't know which way to go and which way to turn. And you lay hands on them as Jesus' representative, as the womb God birthing out a miracle and God pours out some of those prayers of the saints that have been stored up and all of a sudden God does a miraculous work in that person's life. I'll guarantee you when you walk away from that conversation, you're going to walk away a whole lot lighter than you did when you entered into it. That's what God wants to do. The only thing holding God back is us. God's not lacking power; He's not lacking desire. He's waiting for us, and He says, "Hey, guys, listen up, dress up." Again, in Sardis, this would mean, man, there was a lot of textile going on there, and He says to those who are the remnant, "I have a few people in Sardis, and they not sold their clothes." And so he says, they will walk with me dressed in white. Why? Because, listen, when you gave your life to Jesus, Jesus clothed you in the righteousness of Christ, right? He enveloped you so that when, as you walk with Jesus, there's a positional righteousness and there's a practical righteousness. The two do not line up in this lifetime. We don't always live out what we've become. But when we enter into heaven, all of that will go away because we will be then in perfect sync with Christ, our Savior. But he says, we are, we are walking in this this white, we, we're trying as worshipers, we're, we're studying the Scripture, and we're living in community, and we're unifying around the mission, and, and man, we're going to dress up, and we're going we're to live for Jesus, and we're going to try to glorify him. White is symbolic of a pure relationship, of a covenant relationship. When we think about covenant relationships, we think about marriage, right? You step into marriage with the idea of, of it's just an obligation, like, really, honey, do I have to tell you I love you every day? Is that really, like, is that part of the deal? Uh, really, you want me to serve you in some way? I, yeah, I don't think that's part of the covenant. I, I just, you know, I just want to do my thing. You do your thing, we do our, my thing, and we'll come to meet, you know, at supper time. I'm going to spend money on you? Are you kidding me? Right, how, how would you like that if you were in that kind of marriage relationship? And sometimes that's exactly the way we treat our covenant relationship with God. Lord, do I really have to pray? Do I really need to read your word? Lord, I, I mean, I don't have time, and I, you know, I'm in a hurry on my way to work, even though you sat in line for 15 minutes to get your Starbucks that cost you half your paycheck. But, you know, it's okay, God. You know what I think God does? He just says, okay. If, that, which, if that's what you want, Okay here's what you're going to miss. You're never going to know what it's like to walk in the fullness of Christ. You're never going to know. God will allow you to put your level of relationship with him on whatever level you want, but you will miss what could have been, what should have been, what ought to have been. And he says, in essence, To us also, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. What that means is that every person born in this world, their name's written in the book of life, you die without Jesus, your name is blotted out, and at the end of human history, the Lamb of God will receive the Lamb's book of life that will contain all the names of all of those who are true, authentic followers of Jesus Christ. So here's the problem, and I close. The problem is, while we're waiting for Jesus to come down, Jesus is waiting for the church to stand up. Because if she doesn't, here in America, in another 10 years, we're going to be in a world of hurt. Not just this church. I'm talking about churches all throughout our country. We're going to be in a real world of hurt. And I think the news of people walking away from the faith will become so regular and so frequent, we won't even think about it anymore. And how sad it is because God has so much more. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you for an honest look and assessment of our lives. Jesus, we thank you that you pull no punches you hold nothing back. You don't try to sugarcoat it. You just challenge us with your word because your word is truth. And I pray for those here this morning who may be wrestling and doubting whether or not they're truly an authentic follower of yours. Not based on a hope so, not based on a think so, like Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit will just nail it down today. On a, I know, I I know, I am authentic follower of Christ. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure, and you, this has been a question. And so maybe you just need to pray with me, and you just make this your prayer that you're going to step out and you're going to actually trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for the salvation of your soul, for the forgiveness of your sins, to bring life in your spirit where there is death, resurrection life, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You may pray something like, Dear Jesus, thank you for coming and giving your life for me. Please forgive me of my sins. Thank you that you make all things new. And so, Jesus, today I'm putting my life into your hands. I want you to be in charge of it, and I want you to lead it. I'm asking you to forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future. I'm embracing you to be my Savior and Lord. I'm receiving your gift of salvation because of the payment you've made on my behalf through your death and your burial and your resurrection. And so I thank you for that gift. Father, I pray for anyone who maybe prayed that in the sincerity of their heart, that, God, they will open up and share that with somebody here this morning. I pray that they will let it be known that they've stepped across that line of faith and trust in you. God, I pray that you will continue to assess us individually and corporately. God, are we dying? Are we dead? Are we dedicated? Is there a remnant, is this, or is this more conducive of, of our entire church? God, we, we do not want to live with blinders. We don't want to pretend that things are better than they are. God, we know that you want to breathe, breathe life into us, just as you breathe life into those dry bones in that valley. God, there is nothing you cannot do in us and through us as we yield ourselves and as we surrender ourselves to you. And I pray that for every single individual here today. May you unite our hearts around the great commandment and the great commission as we seek to live for you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.